If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we've got an interview with the historian and broadcaster Tessa Dunlop. Tessa is the author of a recent book about top-secret intelligence work of women at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. She was speaking down the line to Charlotte Hodgman, the editor of our sister magazine, BBC History Revealed. Pat, start by telling me, you know, what, what prompted you to want to, to, to write this book and, and what did you want to sort of get from it? Um, what, you know, what were you thinking when you first sort of had that idea? Well, funnily enough, I'm going to be ruthlessly honest because honesty is the best policy. I always think I was, in fact, approached to write this book and I... Um, was surprised uh, because I couldn't even really do a Rubik's cube. I was a <laughs> 1980s school child, and you know, I I'm not a, a code breaker or a mathematician, and I was quite intimidated by the idea of uh, diving into the world of Bletchley Park, where many had gone before me. And I was uh, decided to accept the challenge because the publisher wanted the voices from only women, so it's exclusively to be about women. And secondly, all those women in my book were to still be alive. Mm. And that was particularly appealing because I think one of the problems for historians of Bletchley Park, and for anybody who's sort of a truth hunter, um, is that it's 
become, for for many fairly obvious reasons, uh, a big part of our sort of national um, mythologizing. You know, the way every country likes to tub thump about its the positive bits of its past, and there's lots of bits about Bletchley Park that tie into a kind of um, a, a, that has acquired a myth-like status, mm. and of course. Um, it, the, it's it's the perfect sort of location for <clears throat> for historical fiction and for film and for literature. And what happens is you get a sort of tissue of storytelling, and it becomes increasingly hard to discern fact from fiction. Mm. And uh, therefore, it was very helpful to talk to the women themselves uh, because they were able to establish what had really happened. Although I've got to caveat that with the dangers then of oral history, because remember that the way in which we remember our own personal life story is through this giant editing process. I mean, you or I, Charlotte, can't possibly remember everything from our childhood. We cherry pick the bits we want to. And likewise, the women who worked at the park. And what's really interesting about those women who worked at the park is that, of course, most of them had really no idea of the big picture, i.e., the organization that they were part of and its relevance or significance at the time. But lest we forget, there was this huge hoo-ha in the 70s, or rather a sort of drip feed that gradually built momentum into the juggernaut that's now become Bletchley Park. And they too dived in and started reading about it like the rest of us. So sometimes they would sit there telling me things that had happened. And I said, and I would say to them, but you couldn't possibly have known that at the time. And sure enough, they had retrospectively learnt about what they'd been doing. Do you see what I mean? So, so the whole thing was quite, was fraught with a series of sort of complications that I hadn't anticipated. I ought to just say very quickly, uh, in terms of why Bletchley has become this, you know, area of national mythmaking almost, I think I always liken it to a bit like a sort of Agatha, the setting for an Agatha Christie book. You know, you need... um one location, one focus, a set number of characters, you know, and, and Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire, closed off, secret. Mm. It has all the kind of key credentials for a really great narrative. Yeah, it and, does. and I think that's what's keyed into our in our national psyche, and of course, being attached to this hugely historical uh, significance, um, uh, where it was so vital uh, and, and fed into our, our victory, our Allied victory uh, during World War Two. Mm. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, you talk about in in the feature you've written about how um, the 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 huge number of women who worked at Bletchley, which I'm sure most listeners wouldn't be aware of. I mean, in your book, you say that by 1944, women out, outnumbered men at Bletchley three to one. Um, so why do you th- why don't you think we've heard more of their stories before? Because uh, well, there's lo- there's lots of reasons. Um, I obviously, you know, we like a flamboyant character, an exceptional person, and the majority of those exceptional people at Bletchley Park were men. Mm. You know, the the leading cryptanalysts, the Gordon Welchmans and the Alan Turing's and the Tommy Flowers, who wasn't a cryptanalyst, he built the Colossus. Um, these were male. Now, that's not to do down uh, feminine intellect or our ability with in computing and mathematics. It was simply that men were educated more and more thoroughly and their education was prioritized um, than, than, the, uh, than the education of um, 
they're contemporary females. Uh, it's very interesting to me when I spoke to a lot of these women. Um, so their brothers would go off to university. Money had been reserved for uh, their brother's boarding school and university. And for them, it was, you know, the local school or some fairly second-rate governess. And then off to, you know, I don't know, secretarial college or something. More mm. changed that narrative for some of them. But the bottom line is, um, still um, early on in the 20th century, education for women was not a priority. I mean, let, let's keep this real. I was born in 1974. I vividly recall my grandmother, who was of these Bletchley girls era, saying to me, um, oh, women, um, education isn't as important for women. <laughs> you know, so she was still carrying that. I don't, and, and we laugh, but arguably we still don't have the economic muscle power of men. Do, mm. do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not such a, a, a radical thing to say, hey, guess what? Girls weren't as educated as well as men because they simply weren't. And um, Bletchley Park relied on at the very top level, extraordinary minds, you know, an extraordinary machine or concept like the Enigma encryption, at the, the level the Enigma was doing, needed something equally extraordinary at the other end to unravel it. And therefore, you have got to have been well-educated. It can't just be, you know, a fluke genius who can do a crossword. That's, again, the, the kind of Bletchley myth machine. And so there were, I think, four women who were cryptanalysts in the entire park. It's funny because we all, I think we're quite uh, territorial about our family's heritage and our, you know, the, the way in which we tell our family stories. And uh, one Bletchley girl who is, is no longer with us, actually, I, read, I wrote this book three years ago. Um, uh, she, she died a couple of years ago, but her daughter was absolutely adamant that her mother was a code breaker. And I'm like, well, I suppose, you know, when we do Sudoku or a crossword, we're code breakers. Mm. And so lots of the women who worked at the park, even though they weren't cryptanalysts, they weren't working at a very top level, you know, they were code breaking. You know, Roseanne, uh, who's darling, you know, the most angelic woman, she spoke a bit of Italian because her father um, had worked in the diplomatic service over in Rome when she was a child. In fact, she she saw Mussolini and she met Hitler um, just to, to prove how living history these women uh, mm. were. She, she was a sort of code breaker in that she would get the code books from failed down Italian aircraft and have to work out, you know, kind of, kind of basic. She was given a, a basic code sheet to have to work out what these codes were saying. Now, that didn't mean that she was a genius mathematician, but, but she was sitting there doing her eight hour shift and code breaking. And actually, at one point in the middle of the night, did break a very significant series of codes, which led to um, the Allies being able to um, down a, a series of Italian aircraft coming back across the Mediterranean. One of the downsides of Bletchley is that it has been a lot of what's been said has become sort of um, d difficult to discern from the fiction that's been wrapped around the narrative. Mm. So, I mean, where where did these women come from? How were they recruited to be working at, um, at Bletchley? Oh, see, then we're going to tap into another little myth, um, which is that all the women at the park were posh. A lot of the, the women, in fact, the three uh, featured predominantly in that article are still very much alive and fully compass mentors. Yeah. And um, are quite sensitive, one or two of them, about this kind of uh, reference to them being simply posh. Um, however, at the beginning of the war, um, there were, there were a disproportionate number of smart, um, the grand, in other words, girls who mm. were recruited to Bletchley Park. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, there was no um, idea of how big 
Bletchley Park would become. I mean, I liken it to a sort of code-breaking factory by the end of the war, you know, where thousands of people were working on this sort of conveyor belt of code-breaking um, and all the different compartmentalised areas. Um, but at the beginning, it was a sort of much smaller, personal, but still intensely secret affair. By definition, of course, if the enemy knows that you're breaking its codes, um, that renders breaking them useless. So it had to be very, very secret from the outset. Now, it was also the brainchild of several top-end men in the Foreign Office, um, in the Cypher School, and also um, in the, um, in, 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 I think it's particularly in the Naval Service, actually. Now, all men uh, at that time, very high up in establishment roles, um, from the ruling classes were pretty grand. Um, and they had to recruit, uh, people to come and assist in an administrative capacity, predominantly these so-called boffins who were sort of landing in uh, an unlikely park in Buckinghamshire to help. Now, if it's got to be very secret, who are you going to recruit? You're going to recruit the people you know. Mm. Um, and therefore you got goddaughters and daughters and wives initially pulled into the Bletchley Park project. It wasn't that, I mean, some, and in fact, one Lady Jean uh, repeated something I often hear, which is, oh, well, it was believed that posh girls were more trustworthy. And I actually would challenge that. Nowhere did I see that written down or um, or understand that to be the case. It was simply that uh, these powerful men needed to recruit people they trust. And I think you trust people you know. Mm. So you you recruit from your inner circles, and um, that's why these girls ended up at Bletchley Park. It ought to be said that the, a lot of them at the beginning were civilian. Now, the Foreign Office, which was the parent body of the Code and Cipher School, was um, uh, had often employed women, especially in administrative and supportive roles. So it wasn't unusual, therefore, that they would... Um, have employed women anyway and in the war of course uh, that became that um, tradition became a necessity because so many men were going off to the front line now the reason why um, these posh girls civilian girls um, and the idea of them being somewhat grand is a distortion is because what happened in 1939-1940 um, of course changed radically towards the end of the war even in the middle of the war when this project was sort of scaled up you know, there was the letter sent to Churchill, um, you know, that much more money and resources were needed and, and the, the level at which we were co code breaking was absolutely gargantuan. So you get industrial sized machines being invented and you also need industrial numbers of workers. And that meant that, you know, tapping up your goddaughter was no longer sufficient. Um, and the it wasn't ever entirely delegated, but a huge heft of the recruitment pressure was handed over um, to the three um, military forces. And now by 19, late 1941, for the first time in British history, anywhere you get conscription for women. And suddenly now the Wrens, the ATS and the WAFs are um, asked to recruit for Bletchley Park, particularly um, the, the there was an emphasis on Wrens being recruited, it ought to be said, to Bletchley. So there's a disproportionate number of girls who thought they were going to go and work by the sea with a handsome sailor and actually ended up inside uh, a, a sort of slightly monotonous park on the flatlands of, 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 of Buckinghamshire. But there we go. So, yeah, so that was the, the narrative. But in the end, if you look at the numbers who went through Bletchley Park, numbers of female workers, the majority weren't from posh families and and, and nor were they uh, and, and they were also predominantly in uniform, although not all of them were in uniform. So there was always a mix of those in uniform and those 
in civvies. Mm. Uh, but but again, you see at the beginning, those sort of flamboyant stories that include likes of Jean Trumpington, etc. Well, she was obviously a blue blood. She was probably, I don't know her story off by heart, but I know women who, were, who worked there with her. She will have been tapped up by somebody in the know. My Lady Jean, the aristocrat, the blue blood in, in the book I wrote about, you know, his, her father was told by Lord Mountbatten there was a job for a girl like her. You know, and, and those sort of stories are very memorable. And I think it's why they, they've led the female narrative regarding mm. Bletchley and therefore that debutant story. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She, she's convinced that when she was at Abbotscliffe in Kent that she saw Churchill and his Homburg hat and Monty's Berry coming over the cliff. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, I gave him a great big grin like, and a wave. I couldn't think what to do. I wasn't in uniform that morning, she said. And she said, they walked on past. They gave me a wave back. She said, I think it was all part of the ruse to make the Germans think we were going to land in Pas-de-Calais. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, so what would it have been like actually working at Bletchley? Um, I mean, I, we kind of, you, know, you say in the feature as well, that you, you get this idea of it being sort of full of intellectuals, you know, very sort of studious atmosphere. Was it actually like that? Is that what you kind of got from from the women you spoke to? Do you know, I feel I'm being a nightmare interview for you, Charlotte, because there's never, and this is what I found, I, I had 15 women I spent about a year with 15 women, all of whom had worked in different aspects of the, the sort of Bletchley or code-breaking project. Now, some of those women didn't even work in Bletchley Park because they mm. were the Y stations, you know, the, at the intersection coalface, if you like, getting these messages, these Enigma encrypted messages. And then the X station X was Bletchley Park where they were received and processed and um, decoded. Now, 
it very much depends in life, whether you enjoy something or it's fun or work is interesting, depends on what you're doing and what you have to compare it to. So I was fascinated by just how different all the women's perception of what they did and how much they enjoyed it differed. Mm. Um, and it's therefore quite hard to generalise. Uh, Lady Jean said, well, I would have had a much more interesting job had I been uh, able to speak German. The girls who spoke a language had more interesting jobs. <laughs> and she, it must be said that um, she had an incredibly dull job where she was, the, the most exciting thing was that she'd uh, worked in the same hut as Turing. Yes, he had a sweet little face. Um, and his uh, so-called fiancée, Joan Clark, oh, she wasn't nearly as pretty as Kieran Knightley, that ridiculous film. But her job actually was sort of cross-checking the ticks on a piece of paper. She was, if you like, um, a sort of drum on a bomb machine for a bomb machine that had not yet been made. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. sometimes these girls were literally sort of a bit part in a machine. Their jobs were so dull. Uh, it was marginally more interesting if you could speak, I suppose, a bit of basic level German. Uh, then Pamela who was doing the so-called indexing, you know, was said, oh, well, I suppose what I did was I sort of um, translated the equivalent of today's text message in basic schoolgirl German. And she wasn't terribly excited by what she did because she'd really wanted to be an actress on the West End stage and had been forced by a godmother, you know, to do her bit and go to Bletchley Park. And she was also a little bit older. So I think when you've, when you've lived a bit and mm. then coming to a park is a bit like ennui and dull, whereas a lot of the later girls in particular who were recruited by uh, the military services had come straight from school you know they'd just left their school uniform behind so actually going to work in a park in Bletchley was quite exciting no matter what job they were given mm. you know being part of this war effort that they'd heard and read so much about so in that respect some of the younger ones were riveted by it uh, a couple of girls were lucky enough to find husbands there it was pretty difficult because the men who were left behind working were intensely academic and all pretty old in comparison with a sort of 16 year old schoolgirl. but a couple found their husbands which of course makes it more memorable doesn't it it's a yeah. bit of kiss and tail behind a shed <laughs> um you know um so yeah it, it, it absolutely depended on the individual what i would say the one hallmark um that all of them shared the one overriding memory was this emphasis on secrecy mm. so even if some had quite interesting jobs like Roseanne, of course with her italian schoolgirl italian being able to break those codes that led to the downing of several Italian aircraft that was you know a big moment for her mm. um and also she met Pamela the actress and so she met this really cool girl in the park you know what it's like when you're 18 yeah. you meet a couple of people who you feel are out with your standard social circle and your mind's blown you know you get your schoolgirl pash and you, you know <laughs> and, and you do a bit of extracurricular drama and maybe drink your first ever gin and French and and you think you know you're the bee's knees so irrespective of whether the, the shift is slightly dull and the rations are limited so um it, it depended but just to go back that emphasis on secrecy because i said oh well none of the women really understood they were part of this bigger code-breaking organization but pamela who ended up being married i think to the head of her hut jim rose of course said she did know exactly what the park was doing and that mm. it was code-breaking <laughs> and so again you can't generalize but most um girls had no clue really of the bigger picture and that meant that had they had the enemy got hold of them and pulled them by the scruff of the neck and um you know squeezed them till the pip squeaked they wouldn't have really been able to have said anything anyway no. because the ultimate ignorance you know the ultimate disempowerment is ignorance mm. did they get to, so they didn't so they were very much sort of working in their own huts they didn't get to see other other huts or see what else was going no, on elsewhere in the park no it was park. really no 
was totally compartmentalized. <clears throat> you know, there's okay. this one little job to do and they were doing it. And and if you think so so Pat's down in in, in um Abbott's Cliff, where's that? Down in Kent. Mm. Um, and she's, you know, listening to Alpha, Beta, Murta, whatever the German alphabet is, and they're frantically taking down this Enigma code and um, not knowing it's Enigma encoded, incidentally, not having a clue what Enigma is, and sending it off on a teleporter machine to Station X, not knowing where Station X is, not really knowing what she's doing. Uh, and um, then somebody, Charlotte, who's a, a, another woman, is, you know, receiving all this data and sort of filing it. Because what do you do with, by this stage, you know, mid war thousands and thousands? Thousands of communications are coming in. They need filed. Well, Charlotte doesn't really know what she's filing. She's just doing what she's told. And, and I think it's really easy to forget the deferential era that we then lived in. You know, um, people, Joanne, um, one of the women who worked with the Colossus, she was a Wren, said, oh, nowadays girls would blab. And again, I'm like, I don't know if, I don't know if that's the case. If, if there was a war on, would, would we blab if it was a life and death matter it's just that's not thank the law being required of our generation and therefore it's very hard to counter charges that we are sort of you know more gossipy than the generation before but we certainly are less less deferential that's for sure it might be harder for us to train ourselves um to be stum because those women from that generation were brought up knowing they could not talk you know and they couldn't talk back at authority you know they would and they'd just come out of school you know, you didn't, you did, you, you abided by your parents' rules, by your school rules, by the rules set by patriarchal society. And then there's a war on. So there's a whole nother layer of kind of, you know, making sure you shut up. And what's really interesting is actually in the 70s when the story came out, because it became too hard to contain, and also because it was less sensitive by that stage. What's interesting, if you look back at the history, it was men determined to write up their own um, role for posterity, who were the ones that were desperate to blab, including Churchill. When he wrote up his histories, he had to be sat down. I think it was the, I can't remember, it was the joint, I can't remember the name of the commission that had to have a quiet word with him, but they, they, he had to take out all the references to this golden, you know, um, golden goose. Oh, what did he refer to it as? Come on, Charlotte, help the me out. The golden goose that never laid yeah, yeah, the, 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 the yeah. never cackled. That's yeah, it. That's why cackled, yeah. So, so, so um, he was frightfully pleased, Churchill, in the wake of the war, of the role of, you know, encryption and code breaking in Bletchley Park and his part in it uh, as a supporter of it. And somebody had the vision to recognise that it was something worth backing from the, from the outset. And yet he couldn't show off about it in his lifetime. That's gutting to a mm. big male ego. <laughs> and there were plenty of big male egos kicking around. In comparison, women were used to not being as educated, playing the handmaiden to men's success, not being asked about their role in the war, thank you very much. Nobody's very interested in what women do during the war. It's about men and lionising men's success and men's heroics. So actually, not just during the war, but also after the war, arguably, it was a great deal easier for women to not talk about what they'd done, on top of which, it was more men who had a the bigger overall picture of what that code breaking meant to the war effort, men like Churchill, than I say little, little in inverted commas, women just out of school working in a small dingy hut in Buckinghamshire, mm. longing for their next end of break and um, wondering what their ration was going to throw up that evening. Um, what, I mean, how did these women feel then when they actually found out what they were, the the, the, the big project that they were part of? Uh, was it a shock? 
Um, for some of them, it was a delight. Um, mm. Others were shocked, partly because they'd, you know, sworn to secrecy, the Official Secrets Act. That's what they, that's the, what this one uniform experience that them being committed to being secret, and therefore to suddenly discover that that was sort of null and void in their late middle age was uh, something of a revelation. Yeah, and 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 a shock. I think it was for some. It's definitely latterly now that there's been a light shone on. Women, the women's role. Um, I think it's been a great joy. Um, Ruth Bourne, one of the fantastic stalwarts of of, um, of of Bletchley, and and constantly campaigning and working and enlightening people as to what their work was there. She was a bomb operator, a Ren and a bomb operator. You know, she'll talk about the invisibility of old age, especially if you're a woman. You know, nobody's going to ask an old wrinkly. She'll say what they've been up to, and suddenly, actually, to have their moment in the sun. And their voice is recognised and their role recognised has been hugely important. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking um, today, we're talking just a few days away from the, the big 75th anniversary of, of D-Day. Um, and obviously Colossus had, uh, you know, played you know, quite a big role, you know, in the run-up Massive, to that. yes. Um, were any of your women that you spoke to, were they involved with Colossus and, and the sort of the, you know, preparations for D-Day? Pat Davis, who worked in Kent, she was Station Y feeding Station X, which was Bletchley Park, with the um, intersected Enigma codes. And she writes, um, she, she's convinced that when she was at Abbotscliff in Kent, that she saw Churchill and his Homburg hat and Monty's Berry coming over the cliff. Wow. And I said, <laughs> what? And she said, yeah, I gave them a great big grin like, and a wave. I couldn't think what to do. I wasn't in uniform that morning, she said. And she said, they walked on past. They gave me a wave back. She said, I think it was all part of the ruse to make the Germans think we were going to land in Pas-de-Calais. You remember, we... So part of our trick, tricking the Germans was to make them think that we weren't going to land where we landed, where, where D-Day actually mm. uh, originally set foot uh, in France. It was further north. And um, so she has an absolute belief that this was a tactical, that this tactical visit was what she saw when she came out of her um, station finding tower in Kent that morning. Wow. And uh, there she saw them. So that was quite exciting for her, really. Mm. And there was, it was massive, um, the, the role of Bletchley Park, Operation Fortitude, you know, deliberately seeking to deceive the Germans um, into believing that we were going to land in, in Normandy and Calais. So there was that side of it. But there was also, um, you're right to mention Colossus, um, Colossus was interesting because I think always the bomb and Alan Turing have sort of stolen the headline of Bletchley Park, where actually the first computer was the Colossus because it was programmable, um, whereas the bomb was an electronic testing device. It didn't have that extra layer of sophistication. Um, and the Colossus, which is sort of, I always think they're sort of like giant sci-fi eggs. And it was so really rudimentary, despite its sophistication, that it couldn't really be turned off. Um, you know, it, once you switched it off, you know, then ge gearing it back up again was seen as an eye on an impossibility. So they were left running all the time. And anyway, code breaking was a 24-7 job. Um, and the Lorenz was encrypting stuff, often from the German high command. I mean, things signed off by Adolf Hitler himself. Um, now, these machines, because they were left on night and day, had to be had to sort of have their very own handmaidens really they're nurses mm. and these were this um job was um 
delegated to Wrens, who were bussed in um, because there was no longer room to billet them in and around Bletchley Park. They were bussed in and they would arrive and look after this sort of wacky combination of science and magic. It is how Joanne described it, had a little eye she'd polish and, you know, out would come the ticker tape and so on and so forth. She didn't really have a damn clue what she was up to, you know, um, but uh, did what she was told. And what's extraordinary is, of course, that the messages that were coming through were absolutely vital mm. to not only um, telling us uh, or giving us a sort of uh, a glance at the hand, the card hand, if you like, of the Germans, but also giving us a sniff of how near victory we were by the end. Mm. Um, although, again, that was kept very muted. If Bletchley Park was ahead of the game and some people knew stuff uh, before others, they weren't allowed to go around having premature celebrations because it, that would be the cat out of the bag. That was Tessa Dunlop. Her book, The Bletchley Girls, is available now, published by Hodder. You can read Tessa's feature on the women who worked at Bletchley in the July issue of BBC History Revealed, which is out now. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to Tim Bouverie about 1930s appeasement. <laughs>